0: Hello and welcome to Value-Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm your host, Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by guest Dr. David Joyner to talk about Georgia Tech's pioneering OMSCS program and the role of technology in learning data science. David, welcome to the show. It's
1: great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: David is the Executive Director of Online Education and the Online Master of Science in Computer Science at Georgia Tech's College of Computing, and between 2019 and 2021, taught a total of 21,768 four-credit college students, more than any other person on the planet. He's also the author of the recently released Teaching at Scale, and co-author of The Distributed Classroom. I am amazed you managed to fit in the time to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Given the rapid pace of change in technology, um, continuous learning is becoming increasingly the norm, uh, particularly in tech-centric fields such as data science. And this has led to the rise of MOOC-based learning platforms um, such as Coursera and Udacity as well as online master's degrees. Sitting somewhere in the middle is Georgia Tech's Online Master of Science in Computer Science or OMSCS program. I myself am an OMSCS graduate and I consider it to be one of the best experiences of my life. But um, for those listeners who've never come across OMSCS before, um, David, could you provide a bit of a background on the program? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So OMSCS uh, launched in 2014. Uh, it was started as an experiment based on this growing MOOC movement that was all these uh, emerging massive open online courses uh, that were you know, really popular around the, the early side of the decade. And there was a question as to whether or not those could then make an impact on the credit space, uh, most of the early MOOCs. Uh, very deliberately, did not count for credit. And in fact, some of the early battles for it were about how much credit you can attach to um, to completing a MOOC. And so it was a it started as an experiment to find out how much of what we do in MOOCs can now be extended to what we do in the for credit space. Uh, so it launched in um, in 2014 with five courses. Uh, an initial cohort of 300 students started the program that first spring 2014. Uh, it was kept uh, small for that first cohort just. Because we weren't sure how it was going to go. I say we, I was barely involved at the time. Uh, after that, it kind of took the, uh, took the reins off, or took the, uh, the cap off, and just went with the, the original guiding principle, which was that it was intended to be a way to allow anyone who meets the minimum qualifications to earn a Master of Science and Computer Science degree to be able to get one. Uh, and so from there, we would get thousands of applications uh, per semester, let in thousands of students, and it's continued to to grow and grow to this day. Uh, this semester we had 11,000 total students. Right now we've graduated so far 7,500 or so students. And I say right now because this semester's students won't graduate uh, until two days from now. So in a couple of days it'll be even higher. And so uh, it's gotten, gotten very, very large. Uh, our course offerings have grown. We offer about 50, 50 or 60 courses uh, now in all different uh, kinds of fields. What makes the program particularly unique uh, from the beginning has been the affordability angle of it. Uh, it was started as an attempt to use scale to drive down the cost of this kind of program. Uh, the entire program now costs less than $7,000 to get the entire degree. changes a little bit to, uh, depending on how long you take uh, to complete it, but either way, it's between six dollars and $7,000, uh, which is... One-fifth, I think, what it costs our in-state students to do uh, at Georgia Tech, and one-thirteenth what it costs our out-of-state students uh, at Georgia Tech to do. And even our on-campus program is among the more affordable ones uh, in the world, so it's a, a far more uh, affordable way uh, to get a program, at least compared to other U.S.-based uh, um, degrees. Other countries have very, very different contexts for how much uh, these kind of things cost. It's driven kind of an initiative to expand these kinds of programs. Uh, So we host an annual Affordable Degrees at Scale Symposium. It brings together a bunch of different programs that are trying to do uh, the same kind of thing. And so it's been it's gotten very large, both in terms of students in our program uh, and in terms of other programs trying to capture what we've done.
0: Yeah, what you're saying about affordability, that also applies in Australia. So in Australian dollars, my degree costs, um, it was just under $10,000 Australian dollars. And had I done a, pro, a master's degree through an Australian university, um, it would have cost me about $50,000.
1: Wow. Yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting too, because um, we've done a little bit of research to try and understand this space a bit more as well. And what we found is that there have been programs around for many years that are similarly priced to ours but something about scale, they never really emphasized the idea of, of pursuing even greater affordability through scale and leveraging the idea that with enough students, we can really drive down the individual cost heavily because our overhead is, is very small compared to the students that we have. And so almost every cost is very incremental that we do the math and figure out what kind of resources does an individual student add to the program and how do we compensate for that? So.
0: Because my target audience is data scientists, um, I just want to point out, even though this is a um, computer science course, it is um, very relevant if you're interested in pursuing a career in data science. Um, What are some of the specializations that you can currently take with the program?
1: Yeah, so we currently offer four specializations um, in machine learning, computing systems, which is kind of a software engineering overall um, development specialization a computational perception and robotics specialization, and an interactive intelligence specialization, which is kind of artificial intelligence meets human interaction kind of thing. Um, those are the four specializations we offer right now. Um, you mentioned you know, your, your data science audience. We also have our uh, a similar online masters in analytics program that's um, around the same price point. Um, it runs in very much the same fashion. And in fact, many of our courses in the OMSCS program are available to students in the analytics program, and many of the analytics classes are available to students in the CS program. Uh, in fact, three of the four graduate courses I currently teach, I also have students um, join them from the analytics program. So I get a lot of uh, a lot of students from over there uh, as well. So it's it's very flexible. It's um, you the, the CS program is built such that you really kind of build your own curriculum. You have some places where you have to take a certain, you know, certain classes in certain categories to, to qualify for the degree. Um, but most of the, the choices you make, you have a lot of uh, options available. The analytics program is a little bit more um, structured in what you take and when and in what order because it's targeting people with a bit uh, less of a technical background. So it accepts people who have not had as much prior CS experience.
0: I I actually had no prior CS experience before I took OMSCS. And um, I remember um, I took your um, knowledge-based artificial intelligence course in my second semester. Wow. The first semester I took um, computability, complexity, and algorithms, which is computer science theory. And (laughs) that almost killed me.
1: You you did that your first semester? Yes. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's an intense way to start.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it seemed like a good idea at the time. I hadn't heard that it had a bad reputation. And I have the t shirt that says, I survived CS 6505. And um, in your in second semester, I took your knowledge based artificial intelligence course. And um, that was um, required Python coding. And I thought I could code in Python because, yeah, I took the um, how to do intro to Python. Um, MOOC. And I remember um, your first, the first assignment, you gave us this starter code and you said, go build an artificial intelligence agent that can solve IQ puzzles. And I remember opening the files and looking at it and thinking, I have no idea <laughs> what this code does. Mm-hmm. And, and the first night I looked at it, I thought, okay, I've got two choices. I can fail or I can learn very, very quickly. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I Googled every single line of the starter code and figured out what it was doing and then worked from there. And I got an A for that course. But um, I I remember thinking, oh, my God, my career at Georgia Tech is over before it's even begun. And of course, nowadays,
1: you could just drop that starter code into GPT and have it explain it to you directly there. And the students have it easy.
0: Yeah. Had to use Stack Overflow instead.
1: Yep. (laughs) (laughs)
0: But yeah, um, I, I did the um, machine learning specialization and I was basically one course away from also satisfying the requirements of the interactive intelligence specialization. Um, And I almost specialized in that. I changed at the last minute and yeah, but I mean, that set me up really well for data science because basically I had machine learning and artificial intelligence. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I can see how those would kind of give you the, the background to be able to not just kind of do the surface level uh, analysis, but to understand what's going on under the hood, which I think is very often what separates the, the, the analysis that you, know, you give results, but you don't really know what they mean from really knowing what does this actually represent about the underlying kind of ground truth.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. And how did you first become involved in OMSCS?
1: So I was doing my PhD at Georgia Tech. My uh, advisor was Ashok Goyle. Uh, now of Jill Watson fame. And, you know, they had just announced they were going to do this OMSCS program. And he decided he wanted to do a class for the program. And we were, uh, Georgia Tech was collaborating with Udacity at the time. And Udacity told him, either we can assign you a course developer who's kind of someone to partner with you on developing the course, or you can tell us who you'd like to hire. Uh, so he came to me, I you was know, a PhD student, I was finishing up my dissertation at the time, and said, you know, do you want to come be my course developer um, for this course. And I said, sure, it sounds like a great way to make more than the PhD stipend for the end of my my career. So I signed on, I got hired by Udacity um, at the end to mainly work with him to produce that course. And I expected that I would do that for that last year and then move on to something else in life because they said it would take about a year to develop the course. Uh, So I helped him develop it, was a TA for the very first semester and. I figured that'd be the end and I'd, I'd move on. I defended my dissertation at the end of that first semester of us teaching it, uh, actually. But what I discovered along the way was that I really loved teaching online uh, in this environment. Um, I've always loved teaching. My, my PhD specialization was AI in education. I had a background in tutoring uh, before that, which is how I worked through uh, my degrees. And I always loved teaching. I loved education. I never loved the performance art component of teaching a live classroom though, of having to get in front of 15 or 20 or 50 or 100 at the college level and be engaging and entertaining and keep their attention. That's just, that's never been my my strength um, for for multiple reasons. I've always been more comfortable either being very organized and putting together a, a process for learning or interacting with individuals and kind of teasing out the individual misconceptions the individual issues that are are, um, getting in the way of individual students learning. And what I discovered in teaching online was that we got to spend this nice long phase before we had any students to really put together the course the way we wanted to, to script it out, to create really engaging visuals, to create some active learning opportunities, to inject some active exercises into the course content. And we got to sit down and do that really well once and then reuse it for a while, because you know, at least in the field that we were teaching, the core fundamentals don't change over time. Now other, you know, other topics, you may know, have to revise it more often, uh, but what we were talking about, the core, really, uh, the core knowledge of the field is not something that you know, changes very regularly. So we're able to sit down, really do that well, give that far more attention than we could ever give it for a single semester class. And then once the semester started, All we had to do was interact with individual students, answer individual questions, give feedback on individual work, and really do that kind of one-on-one interaction. And so it was everything I loved about teaching without the stuff that I I, I didn't enjoy. And so I discovered that I really liked it. I wanted to stick around and keep doing it. Um, So at first I stuck around working on other courses, helping them produce other courses. Uh, And then I jumped back over to the Georgia Tech side to kind of play a role in helping the, the student experience in the program as a whole. And then by then the program had gotten big enough that it justified having its own uh, dedicated director. And so they asked if I wanted to do it. And I said, yes, absolutely. I would love to do that. And I will I retire because it's just, it's everything I love about working in education. And it's, it's such a unique student body that you get when you do this with this kind of flexibility uh, that you don't get in a more traditional kind of environment.
0: Yeah, I, I actually work in a more traditional kind of environment. And I, I love the performance art side of teaching.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think that's the thing is that online lets us kind of pick and choose the things that we like. And then if there's a part of teaching that a person doesn't enjoy, scale justifies the idea of having someone else handle that part. So everyone can do what they're best at and what they you know, enjoy most. And then students can kind of get the best of all possible worlds. They get the person who puts together really compelling instruction, as well as the person who's really engaging and can facilitate a good course forum, as well as the person who gives really insightful feedback on their individual work. And it's no longer the case that one person has to wear all those different
0: hats. But I think even for people who are teaching live classrooms, I think there's a lot that can be learnt from uh, online. Uh, but I mean, as um, someone who works in data science education, I can't see any way around making use of technology in order to help um, data scientists keep up to date with the latest in data science. I mean, it's not practical for um, someone um, to keep running back to university and doing another face-to-face degree for I don't know once every five years for the rest of their career. Yeah, if you want to stay up to date with this, you have to make use of online technologies, and and I think I think a lot of data scientists understand that. I mean, data scientists were some of the first people to um, make use of MOOCs. Um, mm-hmm. One of the most famous MOOCs of all time is um, Andrew Enge. I think that's how you pronounce his name. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. um, a um, lecturer from Stanford who did the um, machine learning uh, MOOC on Coursera that I'm sure every one of our listeners has either done or um, heard of. heard of, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I guess um, that's um, something I'd like to talk about, you know, one of the criticisms that's often levelled at universities is that they can't keep pace uh, mm-hmm. with the rate of technological change and that the information they're teaching to students is often years out of date. How do, um, how do you as a lecturer and how do the lecturers in the OMSCS program um, keep up to date with the latest technology and reflect that in your courses? Yeah,
1: no, I think you're absolutely right. It's a it's the challenge of of how quickly technology is advancing, especially nowadays. That used to be the case; you could go to college for four years and be set for a forty year career. That I think changed several years ago. It's been a, a couple decades since that was exactly true, but it was still the case that you know you would need to go back for the occasional kind of thing. It's gotten to the point where uh, you kind of need to constantly refreshing on what's new, and it's gotten to the point, in my opinion, where the challenge is exactly what you're saying: it's that. The knowledge that is being discovered and created initially is only ever held by that narrow group of only a few people who were creating it. And the traditional model was, you know, they would create some knowledge and create some more knowledge and it would season and mature and trickle out in the industry. And eventually it would be enough to justify a course and a degree. And then many years later there'd be textbooks and, and things like that. And it would kind of you know, this whole pipeline. And it would, you know, a textbook would come out. And most of the papers the textbook was referencing were decade old by then, because that's how long it took for the field to mature to the point of justifying that level of uh, investment. And that was okay because things weren't, you know, moving as fast. Nowadays, it's the case of, you know, if we wait that long, then by the time you learn the material, it's already nine years out of date. If It took 10 years to, to hit a book. The challenge is that, like you said, the people who are creating the knowledge don't have time to also be the ones who teach a giant, you know, even a giant class of it two or three times a year. And so the rate at which that knowledge is disseminated is always going to be limited by the availability of the people creating it to, to teach it. The nice thing about this environment is that it's no longer the case that, you know, someone doing research in machine learning has to teach that class every single year or every single semester in order to continue to disseminate that, that knowledge. They can do it once quite well, and have that then have a very broad impact. And then either, you know, have that be durable, if it's the kind of thing that, like I was saying that for the class that we teach, that is, you know, durable enough that it can last for a while and be kind of a, a big kind of pillar in the, the community. Or if it's something that's changing more often, it's still far more efficient to be able to quickly redo the course, redo a couple lessons, do a new lesson on whatever that new information is, and have that immediately um, go out. This is one of the things that I think is, is still one of the um, the somewhat unsolved challenges of, of teaching online is that it makes that, um, that core learning experience at, or instructional experience into something of a commodity that is fantastic in the sense it can be shared and you know, blasted out to the world and reach scale, but it does create this pressure to have it be very durable, um, that maintenance component of how we Keep that content um, persistent in in the face of things that new information, new findings that are coming out still is the big challenge, but it's not a new challenge. That's always been the kind of challenge uh, of of new information uh, at scale. In the past, it's been taken care of somewhat passively by the fact that a faculty member isn't going to get up in front of a live audience and present content they know is outdated. It's a lot easier to refer to a a, a video lecture that you know is a bit outdated, but it's the alternative is completely re-recorded you know, it's, it's easier to justify that. But the fact is that same faculty member wasn't going to be the one getting up and teaching something that was outdated. They're too busy to be doing that. They're busy actually out doing the research and creating the knowledge uh, in the first place. So it creates kind of at least a way, it's kind of a, a, a platform to disseminate that, that new knowledge at scale. And then putting the knowledge into that platform um, becomes a you know, challenge, but a more resolvable challenge than what we've had in the past.
0: One thing I thought worked very well um, when I took the reinforcement learning class as part of OMSCS, um, you had your core video lectures, which were created by um, uh, Charles Isbell, who I believe is now the Dean of the program. And uh, Michael Littman, who I believe is a lecturer at Brown University. And Mm -hmm. so they are going through, you know, core reinforcement learning theory, um, much of which is, you know, foundational material that's probably been around for several decades. But you also had the um, teaching assistants who were managing the day-to-day of that course. They had actually developed one of the assignments for that course, which involved um, using OpenAI and building a reinforcement learning agent that would play this um, Lunar Land uh, video game. And it was really good because You had the foundations that were set there by these um, very experienced, very knowledgeable academics. And then you had these TAs who were um, developing material to keep it um, up to date. I mean, I took that course just because I wanted to do the Lunar Lander project.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I hear such good things about it too. Yeah.
0: Horribly difficult to do, but um, I I loved it. And it was great because you got the best of both worlds. It kept up to date and you got um, solid foundations. And I think that's something because the TAs didn't have to bother about, you know, developing the foundations, they were able to focus on um, keeping the course up to date.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's also the, that relationship there is that, and it's something we learned early on, learned kind it of the hard way, uh, especially in the AI class, um, is that there's a relationship between what material is durable, which I think exists for pretty much every field. Every field, I think, has a material that. Five years from now, it's, it's not going to change, you know, unless you're dealing with core physics research where you know 20 years from now, there might be a complete paradigm change. You know, every field has some things that are, are pretty fundamentally set in stone, and they also have development of, of new ideas. And so I think disentangling those where, to the point where you have the, the content that you know is durable, I can really invest really heavily in teaching that really, really well in a way that's going to last. Um, Because you know the content is, is, is worth devoting that attention to. And then have this other component that's able to be more rapidly retooled. And very often that's the assessment angle. And so I think we've learned that the way to do this in a way that captures the best of both worlds is to isolate that material that we're comfortable using for the foreseeable future, and then have the assessments able to adapt to new changes in the field, such that you're taking the core concepts and applying them to new problems. Uh, so an example of that would be um, in my, one of the classes I teach, human uh, computer interaction. And the core fundamental principles of HCI have been around for, for many years and they're pretty, they're pretty stable. I mean, we discover new things as time goes on, but some of the core principles are not gonna go away. It's not gonna suddenly be the case uh, that we want to design interfaces where the user can't figure out what options are available. To, uh, unless a, a very strange context uh, where that would be desirable. But the environment in which we're applying that changes. And uh, a great example of that is the emergence of kind of audio menus uh, since we or audio interfaces uh, since we first developed that course. It's become much more common to interact with an audio menu than it was when we started because you know, voice recognition has gotten better, voice generation has gotten better. Uh, and so you, know, you call a tech support line, it's no longer press one for this, two for that. It's you know, say what you need and it tries to, to map you up. Um, and it could get better, of course, because um, I don't think any of us enjoy interacting with those things, but they've certainly gotten better than what they used to be with the phone trees. And so in our class, we can now say, let's write an assignment where we ask students to apply these principles that we've taught in the lectures now to audio interfaces. And it brings up some really unique kind of challenges because, like I said, one of the principles we teach is that a user using a new interface should be able to discover what options are available to them. It's the principle of discoverability. And with a visual interface, that's, you know, I'll say very simple, but it's, it's relatively straightforward. If you want something to be discoverable, make it available somewhere and give the user the license to poke around and find it. Uh, with an audio interface, how do you poke around in the audio interface? It's not that it doesn't lay out the information to you in the same way. You, know, you can give them a list of options, but now you're forcing them to sit through like a three-minute recording of all the things they can do when they already know what they want to do. They just want you to shut up and get out of their way. And so it, it creates interesting opportunities for us to say, Take those core principles that haven't changed and apply them to a new, you know, a new problem. Um, virtual reality gives us another great example of this. It was really in its infancy when we started that class. Now it's still kind of in its, it's more than infancy, but it's not mainstream yet. But it's common enough that we can start to examine things like how do you deal with uh, some of these principles? How do you feel, uh, deal, especially with principles of um, of comfort and equity in this environment that requires certain physical abilities. And so that that relationship um, between your core content that you know is going to be durable and what you can rapidly change as you go forward is is pretty key. What I like to do very often is have students have access to a library of recent research and recent news that's kind of saying, you know, this is where we present to you the fundamentals of this field, and now check out what's going on right now in this field, how it relates. So it becomes a way to keep them up to date on, on new initiatives and the new uh, the new developments in a way that doesn't supersede the earlier stuff. It just builds on the earlier.
0: What you've just described is one particular paradigm for how people can come up, can keep up to date. And you know, I, I think about an alternative paradigm, which is um, the Udemy course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, anyone can just create a course on Udemy on any topic. And I'm guessing that you could produce, a, a, a normal person like me could probably produce a Udemy course in a relatively short period of time. I'm mm-hmm. sure if I put my mind to it, I could have a Udemy course produced within six to 12 months.
1: Oh, yeah. I think it was weeks. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure.
0: I'm sure I could. I'm, I'm, I'm being generous here. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, so you've got one paradigm where you've got ordinary people can just churn out udemy courses but um you know i might produce the world's greatest udemy course but um i might also produce something that's completely dodgy and Mm -hmm. so i don't have that same credibility that a university has on the on the other side um a university like georgia tech couldn't churn out a course as quickly as udemy Mm -hmm. but um you've found a way so that yes, you can keep it as up to date. And, Mm -hmm. and you've also got that um, stamp of approval that the university provides so that, you know, me completing a course at Georgia Tech um, carries a lot more weight to it than me having the nice little certificate of Mm -hmm. completion from Udemy, which I never actually bother to print out.
1: Right? (laughs) Yeah, it's, I mean, think it's, it's both the, the most exciting and most terrifying thing about some of these open education initiatives is that anyone in the world right now can sign up and start teaching a topic, hmm. which in some ways is really exciting because there's really gifted people out there who can explain things really well. There's people who are doing this for a career who in many ways are better suited to instruct on some topics because they know what it's like to actually do it you know, in practice. Hmm. Many of our faculty, they know the theories, they know the fundamentals of the field, but they haven't worked as a data scientist that can tell you all about, you know, the, the math and the, the theories and the equations that go into some of those analyses, but they haven't been there on the ground doing it on a day-to-day basis. But that also means that because anyone can do it, you don't know exactly what someone's bringing to the hmm. table. And so you could have people teaching, you know, things that are fundamentally wrong. You know, I, am thinking, especially in the, the realm of statistics where you get into some areas where, what, what's the old phrase? Um, If you torture the data long enough, eventually it will talk, which is to to reference the fact that if you analyze the same data often enough or over and over with different analytical methods, eventually you'll find something. That doesn't mean that something is true. It just means that all data has enough wrinkles that something will come out if you look at it hard enough. And so you could have people who could teach a course on how to make your data say whatever you want it to say. And that's not a good thing. This especially gets significant if you, you know, get into other fields as, you know, as well, where perspective has a, you know, there's much less objective right and wrong. You have many different perspectives. People can teach something as if it is the known truth in a field, but you don't know, is that actually what that field believes? Or is that just what I'm getting from, um, from this person? I, uh, I won't name names, but I once took um, an education MOOC that actually came from a university and it had an entire unit on how valuable it would be to diagnose whether your learners are visual, auditory, or kinesthetic learners, which if you don't know, there's no research to defend the idea. In fact, learning styles have been one of the most pervasive myths in education for the past numerous years. And yet here's this course being taught by a university saying that this is a good and research-backed thing to do when there is no research for that. And so it's, it's a little scary that you don't necessarily know what you're getting from a particular a particular course or a particular source, but it's exciting also that no longer do you have to jump through all these hoops and devote your entire life to teaching just to have an impact. Mm-hmm. My hope is that things like our, you know, our OMSCS program, in the same way it kind of balances staying current with creating really reusable content, I think mean, it kind of strikes that balance as well, where because we hire so many teaching assistants, um, those who don't know, we hire about 500 teaching assistants uh, in the program And calling them teaching assistants really does them a disservice. They're, you know, they're working professionals most often who have experience in their fields and they're joining this program um, as TAs to give back to it because they believe uh, in it. And this isn't just speculation. We actually have research to support the idea that that's what motivates them uh, to join and stick around. And they stick around forever. My longest tenured TA has now been with me seven years, I think. So they, they they stick around for ages. Um, But I think that it, kind of starts to get this middle ground in a nice way, because these are working professionals who can inject their, their real-world experience and their perspective into the courses they help out with, but they're put into a framework that has the safeguards to ensure this is still a course that is worth credit at Georgia Tech, that is representing the state of the art of the field, and has all the guarantees that go with being a traditional college course, without being as, you know, just at the whims of what an individual professor can provide the way a traditional course has been. So you kind of get hopefully the best of both worlds.
0: Yeah, um, I found when I was a student, um, me um, personally and many of my um, fellow students, we all preferred the online um, TAs to the ones who were the on-campus ones because the online ones actually understood the online experience, whereas the on-campus ones, they just didn't quite get it.
1: Yeah, it was, it's kind of, I mean, I think, I'm sure the same thing applies the other way around that the on-campus TAs, I'm sure are great TAs for on-campus students because they're all operating within the same kind of modality. I remember we had an early um, experience with scheduling office hours and the on-campus TAs all wanted to schedule office hours during the nine to five, because that made sense. This was kind of their day job and it was, you know, between their own classes and things like that. And no one would ever come because the online students all work for a living. And so mm-hmm. they would all go to the other, on- but the nice thing was the online TAs. They would schedule office hours after hours or on the weekends because they also worked for a living. And so that was when they could do office hours. So you not only had the benefit of the online TAs work professionally in their fields and can lend that perspective, but also that the online um, TAs knew just the experience of being an online student and can kind of understand it's iso- it feels isolating to ask a question on a forum and not get a response for three days. Uh, an on-campus TA might observe it as, well, the assignment isn't due for another week, so they don't need a response any sooner. But, you know, that's the only human interaction they're having in this course. Uh, it's not coming to office hours. And so online TAs kind of understood that, that rapid response is a key part of feeling like there's somebody on the other end of that screen who cares about my, my success.
0: Yeah, I, I remember one time... Um... I was in the. I was in a car going um, between Melbourne and Canberra. I, I wasn't the driver. Uh, Be really <laughs> clear about this. And and I was doing my um, reinforcement learning assignment. And I had a question for one of the TAs. And I typed it into one of the forums. You know, I don't know. Let's say two hours from Melbourne. And by the time we got to Canberra, um, I'd actually gotten a response. Wow. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I, I just. It's, it's, again, it's what I love about teaching online is that if you do it correctly, it can feel very interactive and very personal because it's like having a classroom that never closes. And anytime I can pop onto the, the course forum for my courses and there's something going on there most likely. And what I've always loved is that, you know, when you're a faculty member teaching in person, when you try to get a collaborative conversation going, there's always that kind of, you know, I am the faculty member kind of thing. People will direct everything to you. You kind of have to facilitate because people just naturally defer to you when you're there. Online, you know, it's a double-edged sword in some ways, but there's this nice effect where students don't inherently know if you're there, quote unquote, or not. So they'll have their own discussions and conversations and go back and forth on something. And so we as faculty can come in and chime in much more organically on a conversation students are having amongst themselves rather than feeling... Like everything is running you know, through us and we're the central person uh, in this conversation. And it lends itself to such nice, more casual interaction. I feel like I get to know students better because I can meet them on their terms. It's not always, you know, every interaction we have isn't mediated through this lens of I am the person who holds your grade in my hand uh, kind of thing. You can just jump into their conversations and talk, um, talk more casually. And then everything is persistent after that. So, you know, uh, I, I had an experience recently where a student, um, a former student of mine, asked me for a letter of recommendation, and he graduated in 2017, and that, you know, that was five years ago. He took my class in 2016, and so if it was an in-person student where most of our interaction was, was live and in-person, it'd kind of be a struggle to remember. You know, even if it was the, the rock star student in my class who was the most active, most impressive student, it's six years ago. I've had a lot of students since then. It'd be hard to piece together what exactly was it like. In his case, I was able to say, oh, let me go look up the course forums in 2016, and I'll pull your project document, and, you know, okay, it's been a couple minutes, and I have all the work you did and all the interactions we had at my fingertips, and I could write him a letter that talked really in-depth about the fact that, you know, when he was in my class, this was the kind of stuff he provided. He made his, you know, the class made his experience better through things like this. His project was really innovative and did this whole virtual bartending thing. Which actually was the project he, he built a, a virtual bartending uh, training simulation um, and so you know I could I could do that in a way that would be difficult to do if it was a more um, traditional class
0: one thing i I found and you touched on this earlier um, is uh, with online education you get a very different demographic of people from um, on campus with on-campus students and this is what I've found with the ones I've taught um, often you'll have people who just go straight from bachelor's degree to master's mm-hmm. degree so your average the average age of the students that I've taught I'd say would probably be you know bachelor's degree obviously just out of high school master's degree probably early to mid 20s, and many of those students, um, they're very, they're either only in their first job ever, or they they've haven't had a full time um, job yet. Uh, whereas um, I think one of the great things about online education, and I think this is going to be important for people in keeping up with data science, is it provides a vehicle for keeping your skills up to date without actually having to attend campus, which might be impossible if you have a full-time job. Yeah. What's the demographic of the people who are taking OMSCS? Yeah, it's
1: really, you're absolutely right. Um, we did a, a more in-depth comparison early on. We taught the same class simultaneously to both online and on-campus students with the same TAs. It was when we discovered that online students were actually doing better on our assessments um, <laughs> than on-campus students, um, which is it's all – own whole box to unpack because when you really get down into the, the nitty gritty of it, it's apples to oranges, even if you're giving them the same assessments and the same graders mm-hmm. because different professional backgrounds, different competing um, interests and things like that. I give that caveat just to say, I don't think it's necessarily important for to be able to say that the online students do better than the on-campus students. But for that particular analysis, that's, that's what we found. Um, but at the time, we found exactly what you're saying. Um, our on-campus demographics. Average age was 23, I think it was 23 or 24, You know, fresh out of undergrad. Um, 85% of our on-campus students are actually international students, which is not intuitive. Um, so at the time we did that analysis, 85% of our on-campus students were international, 80% of our online students were domestic. Um, since then that's changed, we're now closer to 50-50 uh, in the online program, but the on-campus program has stayed predominantly uh, international. Uh, so the on-campus is, Very predominantly, international students who finished their undergrad at an international institution the year before and are coming over to Georgia Tech as their first, um, uh, as their master's directly after their undergrad and as their first um, educational experience uh, in the United States. Uh, Whereas our online students, they were average age was 36, 37 early on, um, and mostly were, were here in the US. Since then, uh, it's gradually shifted um, to be a bit more um, representative, I'd say, of the, of the world as a whole. Nowadays, we're at, I think, so right now we're at um, one-third of our online students are U.S. citizens. One-third are um, U.S. residents, or I'm sorry, one-third are U.S. citizens who were born in the U.S. One-third are people who immigrated to the U.S., and maybe citizens may not be, but they live in the U.S., um, but they're from Uh, Somewhere else, and one third are current international students uh, who are currently living uh, outside the United States. Uh, Average age has dropped to about 30, um, which I think a lot of that comes from the kind of latent demand that we see, which is that when you first launch this kind of thing, you're getting a whole swath of people who would have, you know, would have done this 10 years ago if it was there, but now is their first opportunity. And as we've gone on, we've seen it drift more and more to, you know, they did their undergrad since it launched and now it's their way of, of upskilling or rearing their career, but they still are more mid-career uh, individuals. Uh, so that's been interesting to see as well. It, it's interesting to think that now that we're, we're finishing up right now, our, oh, can I do math? We're finishing our eighth year, finishing our ninth year. Yes. We're finishing our ninth year of doing this off by one air. Um, and uh, and so if our average age is now around 30, that means, our, you know, our average student nowadays were doing their undergrad when we launched this program. And so they actually could have jumped straight into this. They just didn't at the time. Um, So that's been interesting to see. But I think averages only tell part of the story because what's also fascinating is that, you know although our average is older, more experienced the distribution is incredibly wide. Um, Our oldest student that I know of this semester uh, is 68. As far as I know, our oldest student ever, I think, was 74. Wow. Uh, And then our youngest student was 16. And so we've got a a, a huge variety of people uh, in the program, uh, just based on the scale uh, of everything. And the unique thing about that online platform is that there's so much more opportunity for them to impact the experience of one another. I was compared to the in person class where you you can get in group projects and a really good teacher will pull out. Um, the individual experiences and use them to uh, to impact um, that in person class, but that's difficult to do when you have a, a kind of a, a synchronous audience that's captive, and you know you have a limited amount of time to to have them interact with one another. And it's also difficult when your in person audience is very homogenous; it's very largely you know that narrow age range and that you know very specific kind of background. Online on that scale, we have you know much more varied background, and then. That twenty-four hour classroom that lets them interact with each other organically at any time, pose their own discussion topics, put up their own articles. You know, it'd be it'd, it'd be awkward for a student in an in-person class to just raise their hand and say, "Hey, Dr. Joyner, I know you've got a lesson plan for today, but I've got something I want to talk about. We should do that instead." It'd be great, but you know, it's awkward to do online. They can do that. You know, they can go onto the course forum and say, "Hey, I came across this really interesting article and put it up," and they're not competing with me delivering my lecture in. in- and, you know, others can then chime in, have their own discussion and really take the class where they want to go with it. And so you've got this unique combination of a platform that makes it easier for students to dictate the class themselves and to drive and to contribute to the class themselves. And a student body that is uniquely suited to do so because they have such varied backgrounds and they can say things like, you know, we're, I mean, my favorite examples are always when we have things like. We're talking about, you know, something in, um, in human-computer intera- interaction. We talk about the idea of you have to understand what is the risk of your design, how confident you have to be that it's an improvement before you roll it out. And if it's a video game, maybe you don't have to be that, comp- uh, that confident. If it's a surgical, you know, tool, a surgical interface, you need to be pretty darn confident before you roll that out to real people. And we'll hear stories from students who'll say, oh, yeah, I was working on a project and we you know, made this mistake and this was the, the effect or we could do this because we knew that the worst case scenario was going to be this and actually hear their, their real world experiences.
0: One of the things, um, one of the criticisms I'd make about um, the way machine learning is taught in a lot of universities. And um, I see this reflected in textbooks. So clearly this is um, a global problem is that um, uh, people who are teaching machine learning don't know how to program properly they're writing in a uh, very, uh, I forget the word for it, but they're basically just, um, they're not writing good um, production quality code. Um, Mm -hmm. They're just writing it one line at a time. Uh, A machine learning textbook that has a very good reputation that I recently purchased is doing it exactly this way. Uh, Whereas uh, when I was studying at Georgia Tech, a lot of my um, fellow classmates were um, software developers or software engineers. So when I was interacting with them in the forums, Um, any examples they were giving, they were doing them with, you know, good um, software development um, principles. And um, you, you rose up to the standard that they were setting. And Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm, I learned software development, not from the actual lecturers in that course, but from the students around me. And I think that makes me a lot stronger as a data scientist than had I learned it from any, in any other environment.
1: That's what we were saying before about that, that interaction between the, the faculty and the teaching assistants. And I mean, the teaching assistants are themselves former students in the classes. So it's the same kind of thing. You get that kind of academic view, but the professor very often won't have worked in that field, but you get that from, from classmates and, and TAs and they have this ability to impact what you do. You know, I, at least you know maybe it's different nowadays. Um, I did my, my undergrad in the late what do we call them? I do say the late 2000s, because that sounds like 80 years from now, but you know, 2007, 2008. Uh, and at least back then, you know, there was, there, there weren't course forums and things like that. The, the maximum amount of interaction you had with your classmates was maybe talking during class or maybe forming a study group on your own. Now they, you know, they have course forums nowadays. So maybe some in-person courses use them. My, what I've heard at least from students has been that they really don't. In fact, I, I remember very strongly one of my TAs once said, uh, so I, in addition to doing whatever it is I do in in OMSCS, I also teach um, an online undergraduate class, which is a really interesting experience because you get to see kind of how the online environment intersects with different student bodies. And the big difference there is that students don't talk to each other nearly as much on the forum in that online undergrad class. And early on, I asked one of my TAs, why is that? And her response was, oh, we all, being the undergrads, we all hate the forum because it's usually just populated by really mean people who will tell us how awful we are at this. And like, really? Well, yeah, because the faculty don't usually use the forum like you use the forum. Apparently for all her other classes, the forum was just there for students to use as they would, but the teacher wasn't considering it a core part of learning experience. Whereas for us, the forum is really the classroom. And so it's been interesting to see that, um, that that kind of impact doesn't necessarily come just from making this available. I wonder to what extent this is different post-pandemic. I shouldn't say post-pandemic, but you know, three years into the pandemic when more people have had to do things online and you know, more in-person classes have had to use forums and things like that, then maybe now it's gotten uh, a good bit, bit different. Uh, but there's something about putting the forum in such a prominent place in the learning experience that lets some things happen that don't happen if you have it, but don't make it a, a first-class object. Let it be kind of the 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 fallback uh, for stuff.
0: My experience in teaching an on-campus course last year, so I was co-teaching it with another academic. We got zero um, questions on the forum, even though a number of our students were in overseas countries and couldn't come back to Australia.
1: So I teach um, about 2,000 master's students per semester, Um, about 3,000, I guess, 2,500, somewhere in there, Uh, over 2,000, and about 500 undergrads per semester. And yet the 500 undergrads probably send me 10 times more emails than all the master students put together. And I think it's that, that comfort interacting on a forum with the master's students um, of interacting with other classmates and asking questions there where they know they'll hear from others. Whereas the undergrads very often, they want to hear from the faculty member um, yes. themselves. And we see a lot of things about that. We see um, my undergrads post anonymously almost 50 or 60% of the time. My graduate students almost never post anonymously. And so there's a a different kind of community feel uh, there as well. And I I, I could speculate on why this is in a lot of different places, but I think a lot of it does come from that, that networking angle that you're talking about, that interacting with classmates is such a valuable part of that graduate experience and why people come to OMSCS. It's not just for what we teach, but it's for the chance to join a community of others who are already doing the kind of things that you want. To do and can help you learn to do it, can introduce you to people, can hire you. Um, I, <laughs> some of my favorite stories from the program have been stories of, you know, I got this new job. The way I got this new job is I was in this class and I answered a lot of forum questions and I answered a forum question for this one person. And then she emailed me privately saying, hey, are you looking for a job? Because, you know, that that's, it's a much different environment. You get people who are hiring and looking for jobs and who have done all these different things. It's, it's yeah. fun.
0: Yeah, um, uh, one of the um, previous guests on this program, uh, Romeo C- Cabrera Arevalo. Yeah. You, you remember him? Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Um, he got his job from someone he met during OMSCS.
1: That's wonderful. Yeah, one of, my, one of my head TAs got his job when he was talking to somebody who had just moved into his neighborhood and had shared that he was doing this master's program. And the person he just, who had just moved in said, Oh, I just started that program. And got to talking, and one ended up hiring the other.
0: So. When I started OMSCS, one of the things that caused me concern before I applied for it was, you know, will people think less of this because it's an online degree? And, you know, historically online education has been seen as the second-class cousin of on-campus education. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I was always a little bit, you know, reticent about telling people that I was doing a degree online. But, um, you know, after doing it there, I proudly say I did my degree at Georgia Tech through the OMSCS program, which was an online program. And I will um, defend that to the grave as being not only just as good as any on-campus program, but um, better than any on-campus program. I'm so glad to hear that. And
1: I I mean, it, it's, it's flattering and humbling to hear those kind of things because it's, you know, we feel that way, obviously, but we have to feel that way because if we didn't feel that way, we wouldn't be doing it. So it's kind of, it's presupposed that we feel that way. But we've heard the same kind of thing from other, like I mentioned at the start, we've run this annual symposium where a bunch of others are doing these same kind of affordable at scale degree programs. And one thing we hear often from them, they're grateful for this program in part because it has such a reputation for being rigorous that they're able to offer new things and not worry as much about, you know, these kind of reputational issues because they're able to say, well, what we're doing is more like what Georgia Tech is doing, more like, uh, more like what the University of Illinois is doing as well. They were another one early in the space. Our program is meant to be more like those, where it's meant to be kind of this, this environment where we can be accommodating with admissions because we know that once you're in the program, we're really going to test you and push you. Um, there's so many... It, it's that every you know every once in a while we'll get a, a question from someone who'll say something to the effect of, "How can that program be considered prestigious when it has an eighty-five percent admission rate?" And our response, I guess it's not eighty-five, eighty percent admission rate. Um, and our response is to the effect of, "Why are you judging programs by who they let in and not who they let out?" You know, is is that your point of pride that you got into a program? If that is, go apply to a prestigious program, get admitted, and then be able to say for the rest of your life, "I got into that program. Who cares if I actually attended it?" because getting in was the achievement. But these programs, these, these new affordable ones are really geared towards the idea of if there's any, if we think you have a chance of succeeding, we will let you in and prove it because that's what we're here to do. We're here to open up opportunities, expand access to these kinds of things beyond what they've traditionally been where you have to be you know affluent enough to take two years off of work and devote six figures to going and getting a master's degree. If that's the only audience we're reaching, what are we, what are we doing? The, the The wrinkle to this is that in order to do that, in order to have that accommodating admissions policy, which for those who don't know, we we say anyone who meets our minimum criteria gets into the program and there is no cap. So you know, we'll let in whatever fraction we have to and whatever number we have to and figure out how to handle everyone later. Fortunately, we've, we've seen that the growth has been linear. So we've been able to just scale up in a more controlled fashion. Um, but you know, it's never been a case of we let it or rejected anyone because we didn't have have room for them. Um, but the only reason why we can do that is because we also have that affordability angle. And when I say we, I don't just mean Georgia Tech, I mean this community uh, as a whole. Um, the only reason you can do that is if you're affordable. Because if you're not affordable and you let in a bunch of people that you know could succeed but you're not really confident that they will, then you're just being predatory. You're just taking people's money for something you know, that they don't have a chance of. But if you're you know, a low tuition point, for us it's you know, $500 per class, we can afford to take chances on people and say, you know, come join the program. If you take the first class and find out that this isn't for you, you're out five hundred dollars. Now five hundred dollars isn't a small amount of money, especially for international students, but it's not the ten thousand dollars you'd have for a single semester of tuition in a you know traditional program. It's not going to set you back financially for the rest of your life because you've got you know student loans uh, on this program. And as a result, you know my my mantra is always I'd rather Accept nine people who won't finish, then reject one person who would have, because it's about expanding that opportunity and giving it to people who haven't had all the advantages before they've gotten to our program. But again, you can only do that if you're not going to irreparably damage the future financial, you know, options of those nine people who got in and ultimately weren't able able to persist.
0: Yeah, and and it's a very much a MOOC approach to admissions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's. And the other thing we've discovered in the process is that it's really hard to predict who's going to succeed at these programs, because, you know, we'll have students who on paper, this person is, you know, a shoe in of course, they've, you know, they did a bachelor's in computer science, they've worked in software engineering for 15 years, they're going to be one of our best students, and they'll fail out after a semester. And the reason is because they did a bachelor's in CS and had 10 years of software engineering experience, and thought they were going to be able to skate through and got in and discovered, oh, I'm still gonna have to work and that's not what I was signing up for. And then on the other side, you'll have the student who, you know, they did their undergrad in psychology 30 years ago, have been out of college for that long, took a couple of community college classes in computer science. And on paper, they're just, they're just barely over that line, but they're entering the program knowing, okay, I don't have a strong CS background. If I'm gonna succeed, I have to devote 10, 20, 30, 40 hours a week to succeeding in this program. And they're ready for it and they really devote themselves and they get through. And those are the kind of things they don't, you know, they don't come out on an application. You can't gauge commitment on the application on its own.
0: And and that was exactly my experience. I I know um, my background was in statistics and actuarial. Um, I could program in SAS. I could program very poorly in R and Python. I was actually told by some other programs that um, I would not meet their uh, admissions criteria because I did not have an undergraduate um, computer science degree mm-hmm. and um, Georgia Tech admitted me. And my first year in Georgia Tech was absolute hell.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but don't let that stop you, listeners.
0: <laughs> yeah, don't let us, don't it stop you. Uh, but the thing was, uh, uh, because I was a, admitted to a program that, you know, I was um, way behind anyone with those CS um, mm-hmm. undergraduate um, software development experience, it forced me to raise myself up to that level. And I know that if I had have um, done a degree where, you know, um, there are similar type degrees where they teach you introduction to Python as part of the masters, you know, mm-hmm. Georgia Tech, um, their approach was, you don't know this language, go learn it yourself.
1: <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs>
0: You're masters <laughs> students, we're uh-huh. not going to waste our time teaching you.
1: <laughs> it's also I mean, it's also the nice thing about the flexibility, too, of being yeah. online and asynchronous is that you don't have this dynamic where, you know, you're here on campus for 18 months, and that's how long you have to learn this. Yeah. It's like you said, you know, if you need to take a semester off to go brush up on Python and come back and then take the class, you go for it. You've got six years to finish the program.
0: Hold on. I could have done that.
1: Yes, you could have taken six years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I, I finished mine in um, seven semesters, and I didn't take any breaks. And, wow. Uh,
1: That's uh, fast the, even for someone who, you know, has a, has a strong background in this field. So our, our average is, on a, an average graduate will finish the program in 10 semesters, one class per semester.
0: Well, what happened was I took um, computer complexity and algorithms in my first semester, which is um, com- um, computer science th- theory. I was spending 30 hours a week on it um, because I was like, you know, going from zero. And then when I took your course in second semester, I was doing 25 hours a week and I basically normalized 25 to 30 hours a week. So then I decided, okay, I'm just going to, I'm used to that now. So I'll just keep working at a pace of 25 to 30 hours a week. So mm-hmm. if I saw that in the reviews that one of the courses I was taking only required 10 hours a week, it's like, eh, I can do a second course. Yep.
1: <laughs> I'll regret it there, but yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Final semester, I wanted to get out. So I had two courses left and it's like, yeah, the total expected um, course load for this is 40 hours a week, but yeah, I'll be fine.
1: It's the end. So at least there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know. It's, yeah. It strikes me as similar to the advice I've heard for, for having kids of, you're know, having multiple kids. The advice I've heard is never let yourself get out of diapers, which is that, Once you have, you know, your youngest is out of diapers, you'll never want to go back to changing diapers again. So if you want to have another one, make sure that the second one or the third one comes before the previous one is out of diapers because you won't want to go back. I feel like the same kind of thing applies. If you take a class in spring and fall, you take summer off and then you just, you're used to having that time back again. You're not ready to go back the following fall. So
0: yeah, that was exactly it. Yeah. I, I knew if I dropped down to below 25 hours a week, um, I'd never be able to do it again. Mm-hmm. And I knew if I took a semester off, I'd never be able to do it again. So it's like, I'm just going to make my life hell for um, two and a third years and I'll get through this.
1: And I think I've heard that from many people and that's what reissues. So I, for those who don't know, I'm a three-time Georgia Tech graduate myself. I did my, math- my bachelor's, master's and PhD all there. So I I have a very strong personal motivation to make sure that the OMSCS program represents the authentic Georgia Tech rigor and experience, and nothing represents the Georgia Tech authentic experience more than that philosophy of, oh my gosh, it was so hard while I was there, but now that I'm past it, I'm so glad I did it. That's what, what Georgia Tech has always been. It's always been a place of, you know, we'll give people chances, Will you know? Let you prove yourself here because we don't you know put a whole lot of stake into whatever you did before because different schools are so different, different backgrounds, and people you know people go through different things. Um, one of my best students is someone who had you know had a poor undergrad transcript just because he wasn't ready for for college at the time. It's been 15 years; he wouldn't have gotten in any, anywhere else with those scores. But who you know who cares about your undergrad GPA 10 or 15 years ago? That's like asking for your SAT scores for for graduate admissions. You know? So give them a chance. And if you're a highly selective program and you only have a hundred spots, then absolutely, you have to use every data point you can and you you bet on the sure things. That's why it shouldn't, you know, it's not good to have to be highly selective. I say have to be very specifically because if you're in person, you're limited by the size of your classrooms and things like that. And so it's not good to have to be selective. We've kind of turned it into this point of pride where, you know, I got into this highly selective school but they're selective because of constraints that were there, you know, decades ago. They don't have to be there any. And so I think pivoting it to this angle instead, where it's not about where you get in, because where you get in just reaffirms what you've already done in life. But what you've already done in life is what you've already done in life. You know, the acceptance is just kind of a a, a summation, a, a verdict on that. That's not why you go to college. It's not why you get a graduate degree. It's not just about getting into the program. It's about what you learn, and improve while you're doing it. Yeah,
0: and that's what I found with Georgia Tech. It wasn't about me getting a certificate that said, congratulations, you got into Harvard, Yale, whatever. It was about, I, I, I did not care. All I cared about is, you know, how much did I learn? And I remember I was taking the machine learning course that um, Charles Isbell teaches. And um, I was taking it the same semester as a uh, Work colleague of mine was taking a machine learning course at an um, uh, Australian university, or maybe it was one semester before. Whatever. Anyway, I was comparing um, the syllabus for that, and we t- we learned three times the amount that um, she did um, in what in an equivalent semester in Georgia Tech than um, she learned at this Australian university. And yeah, that semester was hell, mm-hmm. but. Uh, <laughs>
1: But you'll learn some way. and you learn, I think, under under the kind of conditions that, that transfer too. So yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. I mean, I um, one of my favorite movies ever is GI Jane. Have Have mm-hmm. you seen it? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And that that is just the perfect metaphor for going through Georgia Tech. I mean, your life is hell, but <laughs> if you don't ring that bell and go out, you know, you are mm-hmm. so damn proud of yourself at the end.
1: Yep, there's, there's a reason why Georgia Tech graduates. We don't ask each other when did you graduate? We ask, when did you get out? Because getting out is the, it's the achievement. It's, you know, surviving and, and escaping and looking back on the experience and seeing how it shaped you, you know, understanding that, yes, it was very difficult. And there were times I wanted to quit. And if that wasn't the case, then you wouldn't be getting something valuable for, for your life out of it.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I remember, um, during my final two semesters, I had a countdown of the number of weeks that it'd take until I graduated. And I remember when I got down to zero, I wrote on my countdown calendar, I got out. Yep. <laughs> For our listeners, this conversation was originally meant to be just a single episode. But shortly after this point in the conversation, David and I got to talking about ChatGPT and ended up running to almost two hours. So I've decided to break this conversation in two and air the second part next time. Thanks for joining me, David.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And thank you also to our listeners. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting.